Walk, believe, or walk, Daniel. Walk, believe, or walk, Daniel. Walk, tell you walk, Daniel. Walk, tell you walk, Daniel. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Finneran's Wake. I am with unwavering commitment to the cause of great conversation, your faithful friend and host, Daniel Finneran. Thank you so very much for joining me today. If, dear friend, you find these conversations entertaining, enlightening, edifying, stimulating to the mind or nourishing to the soul, please do consider subscribing to this channel, like this episode, and share it with a family member or a close friend. My distinguished guest today, with whom I'm absolutely excited to have the opportunity to talk, is the great Scott Shane. A highly decorated reporter, Scott plied his trade at the Baltimore Sun and the New York Times for 21 and 15 years, respectively. He's the author of three fine books, all available on Amazon or at your local brick-and-mortar bookstores, of which you should, the moment this episode is over, Purchase yourself and your loved ones a copy. Dismantling Utopia, which examines the inglorious collapse of the USSR. Objective Troy, which looks into the airstrike that killed an American jihadi terrorist, Anwar al-Awlaki, and most recently, in that to which we'll be dedicating most of our time today, Flee North. Scott is a fellow at the Stavros Niarchos Foundation Agora Institute at Maryland's esteemed Johns Hopkins University, where he teaches courses on the media, a field of study for whose elucidation a man of Scott's intellectual power is most urgently needed. Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you so very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on, Daniel. Uh, it's my pleasure. So there are countless fascinating topics into which I'd like to delve, uh, but I'd better begin with the extraordinary main characters on whom your latest book, Flee North, focuses. And they are Thomas Smallwood and Charles Turner Torrey. So my questions to you are, who were these men? How is it that they have, by and large, escaped the notice of history? And how did you become aware of them? So this story goes actually back about 25 years. Um, I was a reporter at the Baltimore Sun and had been for some years. And I stumbled onto the fact that the domestic slave trade, the, the slave trade shipping thousands of enslaved people from the upper south to the deep south, mostly into the cotton plantations, uh, had thrived around Baltimore's inner harbor. And it happened that the Inner Harbor was one of our favorite places at the time. Our kids were little, and we would push them in strollers around the water and look at the boats and buy food. And it, so it came as a particular shock that this blue, brutal trade had uh, been operating for decades in the 19th century around the uh, now kind of peaceful, touristy Inner Harbor. And that led me to write a long story for the Baltimore Sun about the domestic, domestic slave trade. And it became a topic that I wanted to return to um, and, you know, had thoughts about a book. But as I looked into the slave trade, it was hard for me to find characters, basically the material, uh, to support 
uh, a complete story, a complete book. And I kind of enlarged my research a little bit and started looking at other characters who were engaged in slavery and the battle against slavery uh, in the region where I live in, around Baltimore, Washington. And I had heard that, I'd seen somewhere that there was an abolitionist who had died in the Maryland penitentiary. And I started looking at him and that was Charles Torrey. And as I read more about Charles Torrey, I saw that he, there was a guy associated with him in organizing escapes from slavery by the name of Thomas Smallwood. And in the relatively uh, little that was written about Charles Torrey, Smallwood was often portrayed essentially as uh, Charles Torrey's black sidekick. And then as I looked into Thomas Smallwood, I kind of came to understand it was really very much the other way around, uh, that Smallwood was sort of the key figure in organizing these escapes in the early 1840s. And that Tory, who was a, a, a younger man and who was from Massachusetts and therefore didn't know the turf around Baltimore and Washington, you know, it was really, uh, really it was the other way around. And, and Charles Torrey was Thomas Smallwood's white sidekick and, and partner helper. Uh, and <clears throat> the more I got into the story of Thomas Smallwood, the more I realized he was really the center of this book, not only because he played the key role in organizing mass escapes from slavery, in Washington, from Washington, from the counties around Washington, from Baltimore and the counties around Baltimore, but also because he had written a series of extraordinary newspaper dispatches uh, that he sent off to an Albany paper, an abolitionist paper in Albany, New York. And these dispatches sort of describe some of the escapes, uh, mock the slaveholders celebrate the people escaping from them and they're written in a in an extraordinary satirical style that i think owes a lot to charles dickens and smallwood whose whose activities were completely illegal and extremely dangerous uh hid his own identity uh behind a pseudonym he borrowed from charles dickens and as far as i could tell these were the only real-time accounts of escapes that were published literally every week or two as the escapes were going on. Uh, and then finally, you know, I kind of stumbled across the fact that, that the term Underground Railroad seemed to have originated with Smallwood. So, uh, so he becomes the center of my book. Charles Torrey becomes the second major character. And because part of my whole goal <laughs> in setting out on this mission was to uh, spread the word about the domestic slave trade, which I find the vast majority of Americans really have no idea about um, its scale and its nature. Uh, so the third character in there was essentially is, is, you know, was at the time basically the mortal enemy of Smallwood and Tory. Uh, and the largest slave trader of the time, a guy named Hope Slatter, with the ironic name of Hope. Although to fall into Hope Slatter's clutches was basically to have no hope. Uh, so 
so anyway, I, I built the book around these three characters, uh, and you know, and and essentially the the Underground Railroad and the domestic slave trade at that time, about twenty years before the Civil War. Yeah, and I think it's expertly done the way in which you do introduce these three otherwise unknown characters and really, really flesh them out and, and create this life that uh, hitherto was was unknown. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you about Thomas Smallwood's style. Now, mm. he's described in your book and in other accounts as having been a daring activist and a searing writer. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, he wrote behind a Dickensian pseudonym, as you as you noted. He was a mm -hmm. he was a literate man, and he was a big fan, as most people were at the time, of of Dickens, mm -hmm. whom he may or may not have uh, squired around the city. <laughs> but we'll maybe talk about that uh, momentarily. But his style was by any metric brazen. He would openly mock the slavers from whom he stole, and was unhesitant in in naming names. Uh, and that was totally unique for that time. Yeah. I want you as, as a writer, as a chronicler of, of people, to cast your judgment on his style. Do you think that it was effective at the time? Um, do you think that others that might have been a little bit more conservative, like Frederick Douglass, to, yeah. about whom I want to talk as well, um, mm -hmm. do you think that they were right to sort of shy away from that or maybe even to openly disavow that style? Well, I guess there's a couple of questions um, here. One is, was this a smart thing to be doing? Um, <clears throat> you know, not only was he publishing these dispatches, which used the real names of the slaveholders and the real names of the people escaping from them, um, you know, literally a week or two after the escapes occurred, um, he insisted that the Albany editors mail a copy of any paper that mentioned a particular slaveholder to that slaveholder in Washington or Baltimore, this region down here, because they were otherwise unlikely to see it. And he basically wanted to rub their faces <laughs> in the fact that, that he had helped uh, spirit away their enslaved workers and, uh, and you know that he thought basically this was a great thing and tough luck for them uh so frederick douglas as you mentioned was critical of writing too much about the escapes the underground railroad for fear of essentially raising the um the guard of slaveholders uh helping slave catchers run after people who who might have escaped you know, he thought as a, as a, a question of um, operational security for the Underground Railroad, it was a it was a bad idea, uh, and you you can argue that uh, that point certainly uh, it was certainly a daring um, and risky thing to do, uh, but in terms of his literary style, it's it's very unusual. Uh, you know, a lot of the abolitionist writing at the time was ponderous, maybe outraged, um, often religious and very kind of somber. And this is absolutely the opposite of that. It's sort of lighthearted. 
sometimes, I mean, actually, he uses these letters for different purposes. Sometimes it's quite scathing, uh, certainly towards the slave catchers and the slaveholders. But it's also sometimes quite hilarious. And he, you know, he basically um, turns the society or the, the conventional view of the society of the America of the 1840s upside down. Uh, the slaveholders are accustomed to thinking of themselves as wise and intelligent and, um, you know, capable. And indeed, they justified slaveholding in part because these people from Africa and their their um, descendants were incapable in their view of, of looking after themselves. And so it was sort of a, a service they provided, let's say, um, that that they would um, you, you know keep these people in their households and uh, and look after them and tell them what to do. Uh, so so Smallwood takes this and turns it completely upside down and portrays the uh, the enslaved people who are escaping as wily, witty, canny, um, highly intelligent, and very capable which is why they're able to pull off these escapes. And the slaveholders as a group are portrayed as sort of numbskulls, sort of um, befuddled, pampered people who are, uh, you know, he turns the tables, he says, these are people who basically are incapable of caring for themselves. So they have to have their meals made for them, <laughs> their, their clothes brought to them. Uh, and and uh, so, so they're sort of this pampered, bewildered class of people who don't know how it is that these people who have helped them uh, to kind of get through life have suddenly disappeared. So um, so it's a very funny uh, and unusual style. And he, he can be quite um, sharp-tongued. And it's interesting that when the first of these letters was published, in the uh, Albany paper, then called Toxin of Liberty, T-O-C-S-I-N, an old word for bell. So it was basically called Liberty Bell. And in this paper, one of the editors uh, who remained nameless uh, sort of apologizes for one of Smallwood's dispatches saying that, you know, basically, geez, if we'd read it, we would we would have cut some of that out. And and it's a little hard to know what he's referring to because he's indirect. But but Smollett had taken a slap at uh, a prominent politician, Henry Clay, and, uh, of the time, um, a senator, a famous senator, Henry Clay, uh, in part because he's talking about a black boy named Henry Clay and suggesting that there may be more than a coincidence in... Um, <laughs> in the, the coincidence of names and that possibly Senator Henry Clay was this guy's father. Um, anyway, I don't know exactly what it was that Smallwood said that must have um, offended some readers. But there's this apology, and uh, so you don't know how this is going to go. But within, I don't know, a few months, uh, Charles Torrey, who has been helping Smallwood organize escapes down in D.C. and Baltimore, uh, he takes off and moves up to Albany and becomes the editor of the paper. And by the time he takes the uh, takes the editorship there, these dispatches from uh, Smallwood, 
using the name from Dickens, Sam Weller, uh, these dispatches have apparently become very popular because, um, you know, I worked in newspapers for 40 years and, and there's what you call a house ad. A house ad is just an ad for the newspaper in the newspaper. And so they're running house ads that feature the letters from Sam Weller and the Underground Railroad and, and so on. So uh, I think uh, they quickly caught on with readers and became one of the things that people look for in the paper. Uh, so it's a, it's a very unusual, you know, essentially serial work of literature. And, uh, you know, I put seven of these letters in the back of the book and next year I'll be uh, actually editing a volume of the complete works of Thomas Smallwood, which alas, I wish they were much more voluminous, but anyway, uh, all of the letters and uh, Thomas Smallwood's short me memoir will be collected into a single volume. Oh, for which I await uh, <laughs> eagerly. I, I can't wait because there is some extent material from from Smallwood's hand, but as you know, it, it's somewhat sparse. It's difficult yeah. to find online for a, for a layperson just searching. Uh, now, you listeners out there and, and viewers, you can certainly go on Wikipedia, and, and there's a, a somewhat, I wouldn't say sizable entry for Smallwood, but there is some information there. But really, truly, if you want to familiarize, familiarize yourself with this indispensable character in the history of America, you need to you need to get Scott's book because it really, like I said, gives a lot of flesh to his to his person. Uh, you mentioned something that I found very interesting, and that's the humorizing uh, of the of the tyrannical regime mm. uh, in an attempt uh, to discredit the institution of any institution um, by not quite satirizing it because he wasn't doing that, but but unveiling the some of the ridiculousness mm. that is behind it. And it's a way of rendering impotent those who wield the power. Um, maybe you can comment a little bit on that, because a lot of the abolitionist literature at that time did not take that that tack. Yeah, <laughs> um, that took mildly, which, yeah. For which Smallwood became uh, at least regionally famous. Yeah. Uh, there was a lot more moralizing. We think of, um, you know, Garrison's writings and those of Douglas, and it was a very, like you said, much more somber, um, and rightfully so, dealing with a somber issue, that of the enslavement of our fellow human creatures. Uh, but in Smallwood's case, he he really took a different perspective, and uh, I wonder, um, you know, if that was just a characteristic of his, if maybe he was a more mm -hmm kind of lighthearted, funny individual that might have just been his personality or yeah. if he deliberately, you know, wanted to to uh, kind of cut the legs out under some of these, you know, prestigious slave traders, domestic slave traders and and show well, them to be the small yeah. men that they really were. I think that's a fascinating question why he chose this style. Um because you certainly sense um uh you know kind of behind the style is a seething hatred of the institution of slavery and the people who make it work. Um, but he does very deliberately choose this, I think it is a satirical style personally, I would call it satire. Uh, it's, but it, you know, for example, just something that pops to mind, he, he, he talks about uh, a, uh, 
a local official, I believe he may be the British consul anyway, who's a slaveholder. And it says something he married, he married the, I forget what the number is, you know, the, the, the thousand slaves of one man with his daughter attached. And so he's saying that, that obviously the man married the daughter who owned uh, a whole lot of enslaved people, who enslaved a lot of people. Um, but Smallwood's way of expressing that is that this is very much a financial transaction. And he was married to this human property, which was worth a ton of money. So he was basically marrying uh, up and marrying somebody who was extremely wealthy with the daughter attached as this kind of accoutrement. Anyway, uh, and so, but as I was saying, uh, you know, he's addressing people who are well off sort of by definition. Um, I mean, if you owned an enslaved person in the mid-Atlantic at that time, the value of that person might be anywhere from 500 to $1,000 or more and to convert it to today's money, it's 30 or 35 times. So, you know, if it was $1,000, that would be, somebody would, would be worth $30,000 in our money. So if you had 10 of those people, that's $300,000. So anyway, if you were a significant slaveholder, you were somebody who, who had a lot of wealth. And so you're, you're accustomed to thinking yourself as sort of a, a big wheel, a leader in society. So to portray them, uh, not not by denouncing them in, in in a sort of Old Testament voice of denunciation, which in a way enlarges them and makes them into, you know, um, a, a very powerful, um, perhaps evil, but powerful figure. Um, you know, Smallwood style cuts them down to size, and he is, um, you know, he's basically saying, uh, you know, you people can't even get your own meals. Uh, and, um, and we have, uh, you know, and as he says at one point, your walking property has walked off. Um, so I think, I think the, um, the effectiveness of the style is to essentially deeply insult and dismantle um the these people's the slaveholders self-image and in fact you know quite explicitly smallwood and tory when they got into the escape business they're you know they were doing this in part because both had been involved for years in talking about the evils of slavery and I, you know, I think they basically wanted to do something very practical about the evils of slavery. And there was nothing more practical than moving somebody from uh, a state of slavery to a state of freedom. Uh, and if Smallwood, uh, if they followed Smallwood's advice, they would keep going all the way until they were crossed the boundary into the British Empire, into Canada, where slavery had been abolished about a decade earlier and where they would be safe from the clutches of this bounty hunters and slave catchers who are prowling around uh, even the, the far northern states. Um, but they're, so they wanted to do this very practical thing for these families and individuals. Uh, but at the same time, they kind of imagined that 
there was a strategy lurking behind it. And the strategy would be to demoralize the slaveholders, essentially. If you, and it was, you know, it was, um, it made sense. It was a logical kind of strategy in the sense that if you own 10 people and they were, they were worth, um, you know, in today's terms, 20 or $30,000, uh, and they, literally disappeared overnight and you had no idea where they had gone. Um, you, you know, they were using wagons for the most part, covered wagons to make people disappear. So they would cram 10, 15, even 20 people into a wagon, men, women, children, and they would take off in the middle of the night and disappear. And so you had people from multiple households disappearing in one night. You can imagine kind of the next day, Word gets around that, you know, three people are gone from this household, five people are gone from another, uh, and the slaveholders are talking to each other and trying to figure out what to do about this and where the people might have gone, and and are they gone for good, or are they just, you know, uh, skipping work, or what's going on? And and the, the idea was to demoralize the slaveholders who were watching, you know, a, a large part of their wealth uh, vanish into thin air. And, uh, you know, I kind of did a rough calculation for a particular wagon load, 15 people, that maybe uh, the value on the slave market at the time of those people might add up to about $200,000. So, you know, to me, this is kind of like a bank robbery. Uh, it's like a massive heist. And these guys... Um, you know, the, the, the goal here would be to convince the slaveholders that this system is not actually working for them and that they they will be better off hiring people and paying them for their labor uh, than trying to buy people and enslaving them and, and uh, you know, wringing the labor out of them. And in fact, uh, Smallwood, in the guise of Sam Weller, at one point does describe overhearing two guys whose walking property had walked off saying, I'm not going to buy another slave. You know, I, I'm done with this business. I just can't, you know, can't risk putting a lot of money into human property and then having it disappear again. So of course he was very um, encouraged by this. And, you know, that I think they're perhaps uh, grandiose, notion was if you do this enough and if enough people in the area around Washington, Baltimore uh, reach this same conclusion that perhaps the institution of slavery will begin to die out in the mid-Atlantic. And, you know, there you have the federal government in Washington and how could it not be influenced by uh, the decay um, of this institution locally and you know so uh tory in particular who was more given than smallwood to sort of flights of flights of fancy i guess you could say he talks about um um tearing down the entire you know fabric of slavery and and uh and so you, you know he he at least imagined that maybe they were pulling on a thread that would would unravel the whole the whole tapestry um Alas, that was not to be, but it was, you know, that was sort of the, the strategy. And so mocking the, the slaveholders, I think, was in a way a part of that strategy.
Yeah, I have a few a few remarks. One is that I think it was a beautiful marriage between Smallwood and and Tory for the reason that one actually lived a good portion of his life up until the age of 30 as a slave. So he had actual practical experience in that world. Whereas Tory was a Yale educator, Yale, he was from the Northeast. Um, and like you said, was more uh, inclined toward these flights of kind of abstract fancy, mm -hmm. which are, which are well placed in some instances and, and necessary in others. Um, but maybe not as effective in in bringing about the end to these uh, this institution. So I do think that the two combined were effective in 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 bringing together their their peculiar powers. Uh, mm -hmm. And I want listeners to think about this. It's an uncomfortable thought, but uh, you know, many American homes have two or even three automobiles outside their homes. Uh, just imagine awakening one morning to find that your twenty-five thousand dollar Toyota Corolla, or and your you know your thirty-five thousand dollar Dodge pickup truck, are, are suddenly gone, right? Mm -hmm. And it, again, it's it, it, it's a disquieting thought to consider uh, the fact that human beings were basically equivalent to property such as that. Yes. Um, but just based purely on their monetary value, they were in many parts of this country. So, uh, you know, imagine your feelings if all of a sudden uh, very valuable assets for which you paid good money and on which you rely for your daily bread are gone. They're vanished, taken, and you have no real recourse aside from the fugitive slave laws, which at this point are somewhat unreliable and, and maybe just kind of coming into their to their uh, formulation. Uh, and just a, a term I wrote down when you called it a heist, I, I think of it as a humanitarian heist. So maybe <laughs> just <laughs> justifiable on um, some grounds, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. That the, uh, that the Southerners might not uh, might not concur <laughs> with, but nonetheless, uh, two two directions in which I want to go, and uh, maybe I'll begin with talking about the internal slave trade versus the so the foreign mm -hmm. slave trade, and also I want to talk a little bit more about the Underground Railroad, exactly what it is. You gave a good foreshadowing of that, mm -hmm. um, but I want to get into that in a little bit more detail. Uh, mm -hmm. But first, in his scathing, eloquent essay, what to the slave is the 4th of July, Frederick mm -hmm. Douglass describes America's internal slave trade uh, from which uh, um, Hope Slatter, another one of the third of your characters, uh, amassed a small fortune in the mm -hmm. following terms. And I'm quoting Douglass, he says that the foreign slave trade has long since been denounced by this government as piracy. And again, Douglass is writing in the, the first part of the 19th century. Mm -hmm. uh, it has been denounced with burning words from the high places of the nation as an execrable traffic opposed alike to the laws of God and men. To arrest it, to put an end to it, this nation keeps a squadron at immense cost on the coast of Africa. But while so much execration is poured out by Americans upon those engaged in the foreign slave trade, the men engaged in the slave trade between the states pass without condemnation and their business is deemed honorable. So you touched on this briefly, and I think it's a subject 
on which Americans need to be educated a little bit more, and I'm hoping for mm -hmm. you to provide that education. Can you explain to us the difference between the foreign slave trade, you know, with mm -hmm. which our mind associates the enslavement of uh, black Africans being brought to America via the, the Middle Passage and the internal slave trade, which, which continued on uh, after the year 1808 in America? Yes. Um... I mean, that is really what brought me to this topic in a lot of ways. And so, uh, you know, I think w when you say domestic slave trade to most Americans, they have a vague idea of people being sold from one plantation to another. Maybe they've seen uh, a, a um, the site of an auction, a slave auction block or something in some southern town. Um, but I think most people don't understand the the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is that when the constitution was written there was essentially a compromise and the compromise said that the african slave trade the tr slave trade the kidnapping of people in africa and and their um forced transport the to the united states would not be ended for at least 20 years and there were voices on both sides of the debate back then and then uh, by the time 1807 came around, it was 20 years later, and it was going to be the first time that under the Constitution, this, the African trade, the international slave trade, could be banned. There was a majority in favor of banning it, and uh, for, for multiple reasons. Not all of them uh, as admirable as one might think, um, because part of it was that in the intervening years, the uh, there was actually a surplus of labor in the upper south, particularly in the Chesapeake region, the mid-Atlantic, mid Virginia, Maryland, where tobacco had been the dominant crop for a very long time. Tobacco was a very labor-intensive crop, required a lot of hands uh, to pick it and dry it and so on. And though so there were large enslaved workforces, but tobacco also wears out the soil. Uh, very uh, over time. And so a lot of tobacco farmers were switch switching over to grains and other crops that were much less labor intensive. So they ended up with more enslaved uh, workers than they needed. And in fact, in the early uh, years of the 19th century, there were quite a few manumissions in a state like Maryland. In other words, um, enslavers going to court and essentially saying, you're now free. And uh, again, it might not be for completely admirable motives because it might be just that they say, I don't need this guy's labor, so I don't want to feed him anymore. I don't want to house him anymore. Uh, and so, but in any case, what, what happened, uh, so, so you might have even imagined that slavery would die out in that region, uh, die a natural death. But what happened instead was that Eli Whitney, as everybody learned in, in, uh, you know, in school, invented the cotton gin and the cotton gin made it much more efficient to process cotton. And it led to a boom in cotton growing in the deep south. And so there was insatiable demand for labor uh, for the, from the cotton plantations and also the sugar plantations of the deep south. So you have uh, this, this sort of imbalance. And in our capitalist system, naturally, people pop up to take advantage of the fact that uh, these human beings were worth less in the Upper South than they were in the Deep South. And so you have guys like Hope Slatter, 
the leading slave trader of the era in based in Baltimore, who is buying people uh, from uh, their uh, enslavers in uh, in Maryland, uh, for the most part, in DC and Virginia. And uh, in either the, the slave trade would either uh, organize them into what were called coffles, C-O-F-F-L-E, um, which was men chained together, literally chained together, often with women and children walking behind, and they would be marched hundreds of miles from the upper south to the deep south, uh, and often with a uh, a guy with a gun on horseback at the front and another one at the back in case anyone tried to run. Uh, or the other way, particularly out of Baltimore, the way people were moved south was generally by ship. So Hope Slatter had a so-called slave jail uh, on the Baltimore, very near the Baltimore Harbor, the inner harbor that I that I talked about, uh, and he would accumulate people. He had agents out uh, around, you know, going around Maryland, uh, buying up people. They'd be taken to this slave jail, private slave jail, near Baltimore's Harbor, and he would accumulate essentially a shipload. And then every um, month or so, he would load 50, 70, 80, 100 people onto a ship, and it would, uh, you know, take people, carry people, usually all the way around Florida in the Mississippi River to New Orleans. And New Orleans was a major slave port. Uh, for, and and in, in New Orleans, Hope Slatter, um, believe it or not, had something they literally called a showroom where these people would be put on display and sold basically to the highest bidder and then, you know, sort of um, carted out into the, uh, you know, to, to the cotton plantations, the sugar plantations, where, you know, which were pretty brutal factory farms. Uh, and I think the, the overriding tragedy and crime of the domestic slave trade was that it very, very frequently separated people from their families. Uh, so if, you know, it was routine for wives to be shipped away from husbands, for children to be shipped away from parents, for siblings to be be split apart. If you, and often they were split apart, you know, at the initial purchase in Maryland, but if not there, they were often split apart from New Orleans, for example. Um, you, you know, one the wife could be sold to one plantation, the, the husband to another. Uh, but families were shattered uh, between about 1810 and the Civil War. So, so for 50 years or so, this uh, domestic slave trade thrived. The estimate is that about a million people were forced south during that period. An enormous forced migration. And for decades after the Civil War, after emancipation, uh, you can find black families advertising, placing classified ads in newspapers all around the country, saying, help me find my mother, help me find my daughter. Uh, you know, he, you know, my brother was sold to a man named Slatter back in 1840. Um, we never heard from him again. Because, you know, if, if, you're, if someone was taken by Slatter and put on a ship, you had absolutely no way of knowing where they ended up.
no way of writing to them. So literally they were, they were, um, were disappearing. And, uh, so families were trying to stitch, uh, the, the, you know, the family back together for decades after, after emancipation. And often, you know, people who've studied these ads say that in the vast majority of cases they were unsuccessful. Uh, so, so it was a, a huge part of the crime of slavery and this, the nature of this domestic slave trade really should be, um, better known and, and better understood, I think. And now it is all thanks to your description of it and, and thanks to your book. Um, yeah, it, there were ins, insuperable barriers, one would think, in the years following emancipation to trying uh, to reconnect these families. Absolutely. You can imagine them. You can imagine maybe illiteracy on the other end, the recipient. Yeah. Uh, they might not be able to read, you know, and we take so for granted the fact that we can drop a pin yes. on anyone. Uh, and, yeah. Uh, you know, as I'm out on a long run, for instance, which is what I do, I'll, I'll, I'll share my location with all my yeah. family. So yeah. if I'm 12 miles from my apartment, they'll know yeah. precisely where I am better than yes. I could even know. I mean, this was a different world, not only illiteracy, but just knowing, you know, where you were supposed to direct a letter to someone who had disappeared a month or a year right. earlier. Um, okay. where, and, how do you even begin that process? To me, yeah. it's, it's unfathomable. Yeah, and it was. And, and so, uh, in fact, Slatter and the other slave traders often moved people to ships at night because if they did it during the day, there were often relatives and friends of the enslaved who would follow the procession of chain people traveling to the harbor to get on a ship and they would be wailing and they'd be shouting and they would be protesting. And in fact, Hope Slatter even dug a tunnel to carry people from his jail uh, a couple blocks to the uh, inner harbor in Baltimore, uh, apparently with the purpose of hiding them from, uh, from from the public, this kind of grim business, both from the public and, and also from the specific people who were heartbroken uh, to know that uh, that their loved ones were literally disappearing to a place that they might never, you know, they might never see them again. Something that I should say, because in some ways it was, for me, the biggest revelation of my research for this book is the connection between the domestic slave trade on the one hand and the Underground Railroad on the other hand, because it turns out as you look at these individual cases of escape, in many, many, many cases, people are escaping from this region in particular because they've, they're making this momentous, fraught decision to, to run for it, basically, at huge risk, risk to their lives, risk to, uh, of being sold south as punishment for trying to escape. So it's a big, a big decision. Um, and even yeah, if you have the help of, of somebody like Smallwood. Yes, yes. Go, all, 
So tell tell us more because I think yeah. this is a good a good opportunity yeah. um, to expand upon the Underground Railroad. Again, this yeah. is okay. this is a concept of which I think most Americans have but a hazy idea. We think yeah. Underground Railroad. We associate it with Harriet Tubman, rightly yeah. or wrongly. Yeah. Um, rightly. And and right, right. But I'm saying yeah. we should also acknowledge, you know, so, <laughs> some other folks, yeah, Smallwood, who, yeah, Smallwood and Tory, you know, who yeah. were able to spirit away many, many people, hundreds, yeah. Um, um, but you know, a lot of times we have difficulty exactly imagining what this is. We think, okay, yes. well, maybe I've heard people say it was, a, you know, a literal railroad. Of course, it wasn't. So, yeah. describe to us what you know. What is the what is the this? Railroad? Yeah. Railroad? Sure. You know, who who coined it? And yes. you know, how did it how did it sustain itself? How did it move yes. forward? Yes. Okay. So, so as I was saying, many of the people, it turns out, who are motivated to escape, to take the enormous risk of escaping are motivated because they learn they may be sold south. So you have the domestic slave trade, which is putting everyone in this region, everyone in the upper south, basically, uh, in, in, a, in an impossible predicament. They know because of what's happened to their, uh, their neighbors, their friends, sometimes to family members, that at any day, at any time, somebody can show up, put shackles on them and cart them away. And if they get wind that maybe they're in danger of this, uh, of this fate uh, that they are terrified of, that may be the moment where they say, okay, I don't care about the risks I'm taking off tonight. And if they get the assistance of somebody like Smallwood who knows the ropes and has, you know, and can organize a wagon load and, you know, has safe houses where the wagon can stop for the night on the way north. Um, you know, that makes it much more um, feasible, much more comfortable to make that decision. But often Smallwood says the people coming to him and saying, I want to get out of here, were motivated because, for example, they learn that their, their enslaver is on his deathbed. And often when the enslaver dies, the, uh, the enslaved people are a part of the estate and they can be sold off to God knows where, including to the deep South. So as they see this possibility on the horizon, and I should say that in some cases, the enslaver literally threatens to sell the person because they don't like you know the quality of their work or whatever it is. Um, or just to motivate them to work harder. You know, if you don't work harder, I'm going to put you in my pocket. That was literally the phrase that was used because uh, all you had to do was drop a note to a guy like Hope Slatter. His boys would come by and pick the person up and hand over hundreds of dollars in, in cash. Uh, so that's what they meant by putting you in my pocket. So as soon as somebody threatened to put you in my pocket, you know, you were motivated to think about other options. So, you know, uh, there have been escapes from slavery in every society where slavery has existed, of course, the entire history of, uh, of the, the institution of slavery. But it really became a phenomenon um, in, in the 1840s, particularly with these guys in this particular region. Um, there were other places crossing the Ohio River from Kentucky into Ohio. Uh, was was another major site uh, of escapes, but 
passing from the mid-Atlantic up into Pennsylvania was, uh, and then farther north, uh, was very much a phenomenon. And it predated Smallwood and Tory, certainly. Um, but, uh, but I think they were the first to kind of organize mass escapes and to, uh, you know, do it on a large scale, do it consistently, and to kind of organize the route north in that area. So they did not call it the Underground Railroad when they were starting out. Uh, and, you know, but they, you know, they did organize what we think of as the Underground Railroad. And Smallwood describes how they had a um, place of deposit, as he called it, uh, about, I believe he says, 37 miles north of Washington or where they, where he was in Washington, which would put it right around Baltimore, in Baltimore or right around Baltimore. And he had a Baltimore ally, a guy named Jacob Gibbs, an African-American house painter um, who was his main man in Baltimore. Uh, so I think he was probably the guy who was organizing safe places for them to spend a day. They're traveling at night and then hiding for the day and then traveling again at night. They tried to reach Pennsylvania on the third night. So they had... Uh, they had a sort of organized system uh, with a bunch of allies. And that was, you know, very much what we came to call the Underground Railroad. What was so interesting in reading over these newspaper dispatches of Smallwood, I, you know, stumbled upon, literally stumbled upon the phrase Underground Railroad. And I believe it is the first time the, the, that phrase was used to describe escapes from slavery in print um, ever. And, you know, essentially Smallwood is quoting from, quoting the words of an infamous police constable and slave catcher. There's a lot of, the, I have a chapter on the police and a lot of the early police officers in Washington, Baltimore, other places made a lot of their money running after uh, people who had escaped slavery returning them to their enslavers and collecting the reward money. And it could be quite a lucrative business sideline. So uh, this particular guy named John Zell uh, was apparently baffled by the number of escapes taking place, the number of people escaping, and how were these people getting away? And this was his, you know, his bread and butter. So he was heard to exclaim, they must be getting away by underground railroad or steam balloon. Because basically, I don't have—I don't know how they're getting away. So, so there, there were railroads, of course, at the time, but there were no underground railroads, and steam balloons were sort of a, an experimental technology, I guess you could say. So, so essentially, he's saying these people uh, must be teleporting themselves to uh, to the north, or they must be abducted by aliens. I don't know how they're getting away, and. So it's an expression of frustration, a kind of colorful expression of frustration on his part. So Smallwood hears about this. I assume he wasn't standing there when John Zell exclaimed uh, this, though he may have been. Anyway, um, he heard that this character had, had made this um, frustrated remark. And he quotes it in, in addressing a slaveholder, as usual, essentially saying, um, dude, um, you know, I can't tell you how, how your your enslaved workers got away, but maybe they got away on this underground railroad this cop was talking about. And uh, he then 
clearly was um, taken by this notion of this mythical transport system. And so he starts riffing on the phrase in his letters. And over the next several months, you know, he, he advises uh, slaveholders whose, uh, whose human property has walked off to um, apply at the office of the Underground Railroad in Washington, of course, which did not exist, for word, uh, for further information on what might have happened to their, uh, to their enslaved workforce. And uh, he appoints himself at one point general agent of all the branches of the under, of the National Underground Railroad. So he's just having a good old time uh, using the notion of an underground railroad to ridicule the slaveholders and particularly the slave catchers and the slave catching police officers who can't figure out where people are going and how they're getting away and how they're getting away in such numbers. Uh, so he repeatedly uses this idea of the Underground Railroad and, and sort of embellishes it in various ways. <clears throat> so, you know, when I first came across this, I thought, God, it sounds like, you know, he's talking about something that has not previously been widely discussed. Um, is it possible that this is actually the origin of this uh, of this notion of an underground railroad, or this this term? And so, I looked at Wikipedia like anyone would, right? And you know, and and other places, and you you find that there are a couple of stories that had been often reprinted, repeated with variations uh, about how the underground railroad got its name, um, both dating to the 1830s. But as if you look, take a hard look at at these stories, it becomes clear that they're folklore and they in, they involve people remembering things from decades before. And scholars had generally not credited them. So generally, serious scholars had said, we don't really know where this term comes from. So then I looked into the big, wonderful, digitized databases of 19th century newspapers that have only become available <clears throat> you know, in the last 10 or 15 years uh, and are growing, still growing um, richer with every day as, as newspapers get digitized and added. But they go back way before the 1840s now. And so I just put the term Underground Railroad into, the search, in, into these big newspaper databases. And of course, you have, to, you have to word it not only the way we write it, but also sometimes it's four words, Underground Railroad, which was often the way it was, was written in those days. Uh, anyway, but if you look at in, into the two big databases I use was newspapers.com and another one called genealogybank.com. And in both cases of tens of thousands of uses of that phrase, the first ones come from Thomas Smallwood. So I think it's safe to say that while perhaps this notion of a fantasy underground railroad you know, used sarcastically probably, was floating around. Um, perhaps this cop was not the first to use the term. Maybe he picked it up from somewhere else. But in terms of actually become becoming part of the language, I think it's very much due to Thomas Smallwood. You can kind of look, you can see how uh, after Smallwood, and Tory picks it up from Smallwood and uses it when he's editor of the of the Albany paper, and even in advertising the paper, he says, you know, 
Everybody loves Sam Weller's stories of the Underground Railroads. He starts using the term. And, you know, you can start seeing other papers picking it up in the same spirit that Smallwood is using it, essentially as a way of mocking those who cannot understand how people are escaping slavery. But then within a couple of years, it becomes almost a generic term for escapes from slavery, especially escapes that get some help from from other people. Um, but what was, you know, but it was still very interesting to me to see that it originates with Smallwood as essentially one more way of beating up on the slaveholders in the institution of slavery. Because later on, Underground Railroad takes on a kind of almost reverential quality. It's often capitalized and it's almost as if it's this organized, institutionalized um, bunch of good guys. And and it's um, and it and sometimes obscures the fact that basically the the prime movers in escaping from slavery were those who were escaping, who often did it without much help. Um, and uh, you know, and I also came to feel that I'm writing about these two phenomena, the domestic slave trade and the Underground Railroad. One of them, the Underground Railroad, is widely celebrated in American culture. There are movies, there are books, it's taught in elementary school. Um, it's quite well known, everybody knows what you mean when you say Underground Railroad. And nobody knows what you mean when you say the domestic slave trade. And I think there's, uh, alas, a reason for that. And that is that the Underground Railroad has room for white heroes, for good-hearted white people who are playing some role in helping people escape slavery. The domestic slave trade has no room for good-hearted white people. There were no white, good-hearted, heroic white people involved in the domestic slave trade. So it's just funny uh, how the filtering process works and how we learn a great deal about one thing and not about the other. And I think the Underground Railroad also provides Americans, both black and white, with a kind of kinder, gentler way to talk about slavery. It's sort of the, um, the less brutal, less heartrending um, side of slavery. So, uh, you know, so, so all that emerged from my you know, discovery that Thomas Smallwood uh, appears to have essentially originated this phrase, the Underground Railroad, and think about, you know, kind of what that has come to mean. Uh, and the fruits of your discovery are brimming out of this book uh, and, and ripe for the picking. And I think, like I said earlier, uh, will be very helpful to really um, coloring in some of the parts of our history that are that are somewhat uh, a little uh, somewhat obscure, I would say, or just overlooked completely. As you mentioned, there are a lot of dramatic portrayals of uh, escape, of uh, you know people going north, uh, twelve years a slave, for instance, or and some of the other ones. I was trying to think of the alternative, a, a good depiction of the harsh, brutal reality of enslavement in the Deep South. And funnily enough, when you were talking about coffles. 
Mm. I was reminded of the opening scene of Quentin Tarantino's great work, Django Unchained. Now, yes. of course, it's his is uh, idiosyncratically, <laughs> inimitably uh, sanguinary and kind of crude and cruel uh, depiction of slavery. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. But that's a good idea of what was happening. And you would have a, mm -hmm. a train of men uh, yes. shackled together, shuffling as they had by their sides to... Uh, less than amicable uh, slave drivers, basically yes. shepherding them to to the south, to the estate of uh, Monsieur Candy. <laughs> that, yes, uh, that exactly. Yeah, Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. So, although there's a there's a tint of humor, as there always is mm -hmm. in a Tarantino work, and a mm -hmm. and a in the over the top bloodshed, mm -hmm. I think that is a decent portrayal of of what was happening at yes. that time. And yeah, and certainly doesn't. Um, uh, it doesn't shine a favorable light upon the the, the white people involved, yeah. and, and, and that's you, good. Yeah, and you can understand why somebody who has some who, who's living in, particularly in the cities, Washington, Baltimore, uh, where there were you know large enslaved populations, but even larger free free black populations, and where the slavery regime had to be kind of modified. For example, if you wanted to send someone to buy food at the market, you had to trust them somewhat. You had to give them money if you wanted them to take your kids to school. If you wanted them to be useful in an urban setting, they couldn't just be, um, you, you know, chained laborers uh, picking cotton. So, for a lot of the people up here, uh, you know, they imagined not entirely incorrectly that they were in danger of being sold into the world of Django Unchained. And um, and so you can you can kind of understand why that might be the moment where they would say, uh, you know, I've been thinking about this and, you know, tonight there's no moon and I'm out of here, you know. So, yeah. so or I'm going to go look up that shoemaker, Thomas Smallwood, who I hear might be up to something along these lines uh, and see if he can give me some help to get out of here. I think it's important to note also, just in passing, that while most of us like to think that were we in that setting, let's say as as black Marylanders, mm -hmm. that we would have the courage to to make that escape. Yeah. But I think it would be presumptuous of us to assume that that we all would. And I just yeah. this isn't something upon which we need to expand, but it's just a thought, one of these thought yeah. experiments, like. If you were in that situation in 1843 and you were a, a, an enslaved man living in Baltimore mm -hmm. uh, with a relatively humane master, let's say, mm -hmm. again, I know it's uncomfortable to have that thought, but you know, would you take it upon yourself to try to make that escape and risk yes. being captured by the brutal fugitive yes. slave lawman? You know, it's a it's a difficult question. I'm not sure where I come yes. down on it. Of course, there are well, so many conditions. And I think the the question that accompanies that that I thought about a lot is, let's say you were living in that world, and you were an abolitionist. You were an opponent of slavery. You're an anti-slavery person. You hated the institution of slavery. Uh, would you have the guts? Would you have the really reckless daring? to risk everything, to risk your freedom and perhaps your life, to sneak around at night 
um, trying to organize escapes from slavery. I mean, these guys were fighting the great injustice of their time and risking everything to do it as, you know, as their stories essentially show. And, you know, and I've often asked myself, would I have anything like that kind of courage? What do you uh, think? What is, what is the, what, what, to what conclusion have you arrived? <laughs> you know, I fear as a, uh, as a humble newspaper reporter that I would not have the, that kind mm -hmm. of, um, you know, you know, just sort of staggering courage. Yeah. And there's uh, that, a continuum that, 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 and there's a continuum of, of courage, right? Like on one end, at the very extreme end, you have a man like, um, like, you know, John Brown and, and, yeah. you know, he's willing really to sacrifice everything, his life yeah. and that of his compatriots yeah. to, uh, to terminate this institution. Yes. Maybe just shy of the completely, you know, violent tactics. You have a man like, um, like Tory. And mm -hmm. maybe this is a good time to tell us a little bit about his end. It's an inglorious yeah. end. He, he doesn't, uh, you know, uh, he's not exalted up into the firmament uh, as, a, as a hero of the Republic. Maybe you can tell yeah. us briefly about how sure. he came to his end. So, you know, this is a very young man. When he meets Thomas Smallwood and they embark on this enterprise, he's only 28 years old, as I recall. And um, Smallwood is about 40 at the time. Um, and uh, he ends up being arrested. Uh, and, you know, this is illegal. This is literally against the law to entice or assist, as the wording of the law was, uh, someone to escape um, slavery that prescribed a penalty of, uh, uh, in the, you know, going to prison. And he was, in fact, put on trial. He was imprisoned. Uh, and he was put in the Maryland penitentiary, sentenced to six years. And he had a chronic infection with tuberculosis, which had killed his, both his parents and his sister. And that um, from time to time had left him um, extremely ill. Um, but the chronic infection with tuberculosis, you would get better, you would get worse. Uh, but it wouldn't go away. There was no way to treat it really effectively at the time. There were no antibiotics. And so he, he eventually dies in prison. And while it's true that he's, he doesn't become a household name, he is um, celebrated in the abolitionist communities, particularly in his native Massachusetts. And, uh, you know, w there's a kind of instant <laughs> biography written of him which is mostly pieced together from his journals, from Charles Torrey's journals and correspondence. Uh, and it's published. There's a big funeral attended by hundreds of people in Boston. And he's uh, there's a big monument to Charles Torrey uh, at, at his grave site in Cambridge, Mass. Beautiful old cemetery there. So while he's not at all a household name, um, you know, he gets a considerable amount of attention. And in fact, a distant relative of Charles Torrey, uh, a prominent psychiatrist by the name of Fuller Torrey, E. Fuller Torrey, wrote, wrote a very good biography of Torrey, which was published in 2013. Uh, mm -hmm. So he is, you know, there, there's some record of, of what he was up to and what he did. Um, whereas for Thomas Smallwood, there is none of that. Uh, he left a memoir that he wrote in 1851, a short memoir, 
um, one kind of senses that he wanted to put on the records some of what he'd done uh, because nobody else would put it on the record. These letters, these wonderful letters he wrote to the Albany paper were basically lost uh, for practical purposes. In fact, Smallwood in his memoir reprints one letter, one such letter, and says he wishes he had the others, but he had to destroy them because the police were basically sniffing around his home in D.C., and it was it was dangerous to have them uh, have the proof that he was this this character, Sam Weller. And uh, so he has really been lost to history. And I think between his heroic activities in the Underground Railroad, his sort of historical significance in giving the Underground Railroad its name, and his literary significance in penning these uh, this this really unique work of satire about the institution of slavery uh, in the 1840s. I think he deserves to be very much better known. Uh, and if the you know if there's one hope I have for this book is that it kind of puts Thomas Smallwood back on the map. And you know, I hope someday there will be some kind of memorial to him. Uh, recognizing his achievements uh, in D.C., uh, where he did most of this work. Yeah, so let me ask you, do you think that Smallwood's star will will rise and he'll eventually find himself inhabiting the same firmament <laughs> as the likes of uh, Tubman and Douglas and Boy and uh, Booker T. Washington? Yeah. You know? Will he be shining amongst these luminary American figures? I, you know, that is my, that is, that is my hope. That's what I, you know, that is certainly my hope. I think that's what he deserves. Um, you, you know, you, you, um, you wish you could bring back Thomas Smallwood and just, uh, you know, for one thing, you could bring him back today. And I think he had quite a jaundiced view of race in America. He urged people to go to Canada because he thought they would never get, even in freedom, a fair deal from the United States of America. And uh, he had a pretty dark view, having experienced life in slavery and life in freedom, in so-called freedom, uh, as a, an African-American in the United States, he had a pretty dark view of the future of race relations and racial equality in the United States. and. You know, I'm sorry to say that if we brought him back and told him there was this guy, George Floyd, um, we told him about the behavior of police, we told him about the um, ratio of income or household wealth between white people and black people in America today, I think he would not be surprised uh, because he was very prescient about the problems uh, facing African-Americans. And so um, so it would be great to bring him back and, and show him around and tell him at least, you know, there there is a book now that, that uh, attempts to do justice to what you achieved. Uh, but I really do hope, you know, I, from, from months I had been thinking there really ought to be a statue of this guy in Washington. And then belatedly occurred to me that I'd been looking for several years now for any image whatsoever of Thomas Smallwood. And so far, uh, I have struck out. So um, I appeal to uh, Smallwood, you know, uh, lived to a ripe old age and died in 1883, well into the photography era. So I appeal to your listeners <laughs> and viewers uh, 
to uh, look out for any pictures they might find of Thomas Smallwood. Uh, because I realized there might be a little bit of a problem in building a statue of man when we don't know what he looked like. But uh, maybe there's another kind of memorial we can build or a historical plaque or something. But this guy, this guy deserves it. He's a fascinating character, and it was really a privilege to tell his story. And it was a pleasure to be able to read it from a hand uh, like yours. Let me ask you, and maybe we'll conclude on on these two questions. Sure. Easy question. Uh, <laughs> To what restaurant would you bring him if he were to be <laughs> living amongst us today? Now you're in Baltimore, a city famous for its seafood. So where would you go to him? Where would you go together? Well, now um, Thomas Smallwood does not uh, mention uh, eating steamed crabs, and, uh, and I don't even know if they used to steam crabs in the same way. Uh, I, I know they ate crabs. Uh, and actually, oysters, interestingly enough, uh, in those days were, um, you, you know, black folks kind of had a corner on the oyster market, strangely enough. There were oyster stands and oyster restaurants run by black people in those days. So maybe this would appeal to him. Um, he does talk about, in one, in one note, directed to Tory, he talks about the green peas, the fresh green peas at Gadsons, I think it's called uh, a restaurant in DC. So, um, you know, he was a man who apparently liked to eat. So I think I would take him to a crab house on the harbor and we could look out at it and, and at least celebrate the fact that the slave trade is, is long gone and, um, you know, and, and, and talk things over. Uh, and what be, question I'd give a lot you... for that. <laughs> yeah, and and with what question do you think you would lead? What would you ask him first? You know, I think I would recount to him the regress and progress in race relations in the United States, which I think of as the question around which American history turns, basically, and kind of bring him up to date, which would take some doing. <laughs> um, but as I say, I don't think he would be shocked, but you'd have to go over the sort of period of slavery by another name, the end of Reconstruction, um, and peonage, and, and prison labor, and Jim Crow, and the Civil Rights Movement, and the Voting Rights Act, and so on. And once we got all the way up through George Floyd and, you know, to um, two black justices on the Supreme Court, and, you know, by the way, there was a black president, and so on, um, and we kicked all that around, and that would take several dozen crabs, I think, um, and may maybe a couple of steins of beer, but anyway, pictures <laughs> of beer. But... Um, but I think I would ask him, like, you know, what do you make of all that? You know, you you were someone who, you know, were quite unusual in having experienced slavery, experienced the sort of um, extremely restricted freedom that a black man could have in Washington, D.C. in the 1840s, um, you know, also experienced life in Canada, spoiler alert, um, and you wrote about this, you clearly thought about it a lot. You know, what did you anticipate uh, about the way things might develop 
what do you make of this? And, uh, you know, and, and by the way, if we, you know, if we can elect you to public office now that we've brought you back, <laughs> what, what would you do about it? Anyway, I just think the guy had such insight and such, um, such a, an array of ways of thinking about these problems from out and out outrage and fury on the one hand to humor and to sort of, um, you know, powerful satire uh, on the other. Um, you know, he, 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 he would just be so interesting to talk to about, about all these problems we face. Yeah, I agree. And I'd like to be a, a fly on that wall as, as you <laughs> shuck, shuck crabs and eat oysters and uh, talk about all these great, all these grave issues and enduring issues. Absolutely. Uh, so Scott, I mean, you've been absolutely generous with your time. This has been a, an extraordinary conversation. I've loved every minute of it. Again, I encourage all the listeners and all the viewers to pick up a copy of Flee North, a forgotten hero and the, the fight for freedom in slavery's borderland. You know, it's, it's really a work that we all need to be familiar with because its characters, I think, are indispensable in really understanding American history. Uh, Scott, do you have any parting messages for the audience today? None, um, none, but go uh, go read about Thomas Smallwood and, and spread the word. <laughs> oh, we shall, we shall. Uh, so with that, I bid thee all farewell from Finneran's Wake. Thank you very much. Shout, Daniel. Shout, leave a shout, Daniel. Daniel. Shout, leave a shout, Daniel. Daniel. Shout, leave a shout, Daniel. Shout, leave a shout, Daniel. Shout, leave a shout, Daniel. Shout, leave